Interactive Podcast, providing resources for building a better life. I am Zanashe. I am a coach, a conduit, and a catalyst who launches humanity into greatness by accelerating mindset changes and replacing limitations with possibilities. And it is March. We just started March. So, you know, Black women are in a kind of a, a special position in a sense. We went out of Black History Month and kind of walk right into Women's History Month, you know, so we get to kind of celebrate ourselves twice. But I also have um, an author here because we have National Read Aloud Week, National Reading Week. It was Grammar Day yesterday and uh, Literacy Month going on in March as well. And I have an author with me. Could you tell, you know, introduce yourself to our guest? Thank you, Zena. My name is Peter Yochika, and I'm the author of The Condom on Oliver Stone, which is a, a work of literary fiction featuring black characters and people of color. Awesome, awesome. And, you know, being a writer myself, I, I love titles that kind of catch the reader's attention. Um, so I know that probably your title catches a lot of people's attention because they're like, ooh, I want to read that. You know, my title for my memoir is Plenty of Guppies and Other Dating Misadventures. So, you know, that people like dating misadventures. Okay, that sounds, that sounds kind of funny. So yeah, you have a great title there in your book. Was that the first title that you came up with? Um, yes, that was the first story in the book, actually, the first story I wrote in the collection. Mm. But when it was time to publish, we actually had a long series of meetings mm. on whether to go with it. Mm. Because some of the editors mm. and the people who worked in the publishing company mm -hmm. felt it might be limiting mm. in the markets in which it could be sold mm -hmm. and how it could be advertised. Mm. But at the end, we were like, okay, we'll just go with it. It's, 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 it's exciting. Yes. You know, and if some doors are closed, they will open many more doors. Yes, that's true. And I wanted to kind of segue from that. We're going to come back to the book a little bit later, but I wanted to segue from that because um, our one of our topics tonight is culture and community. And sometimes people feel like they have to water down their culture to fit into the wider community. And they feel that culture could be a stumbling block. For example, I have natural hair. For the longest time, I didn't want to go natural because I thought there's such a idea in some people's minds that it's not professional. But... You know, for me, there came a point in time when I felt like I was not being authentic. And also, I felt like I was putting toxins into myself that I didn't need to put into myself to straighten my hair, to fit into some standard that I didn't even agree with. So, what, what does culture mean to you? It's, for me, a very dynamic and concept. Usually when you talk about culture, you talk about the culture you're born in. Mm -hmm. That's what people identify as my culture. Mm -hmm. But when you try and interrogate that term, my culture, then it starts to unravel because mm -hmm. what really is your culture? Mm -hmm. You know, when you take it to an individual level, everybody's interpretation of a particular culture differs. There's none that is 
completely the same as the other person, even in the same family. So culture is a very dynamic thing. Having said that, if we go into generalizations, you know, like here I found that you have to adapt yourself sometimes and what you consider your culture to a wider community. Mm-hmm. I'm an immigrant several times over, you know, because I, I was born in Africa, in Nigeria, grew up there and I went to university in the UK, lived and worked in the UK, and then moved to the United States. So each time that move has occurred, you've had to adapt. And it, it's a funny thing because if you have to be successful in a particular society, there's a limit to which you can say, oh, I must be my authentic self. I must be this particular person, this, this, this culture that I've been born in or used to. Mm-hmm. I don't think it works completely. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can retain as much as you want, but also you have to move slightly. Because even the cultures we, we talk about have soaked in things from other cultures. There's not one single culture on earth that is static. So it's, that's why I say it's fluid, it's, 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 it's dynamic. We continue to adapt as we go along. For each person, it will be a personal judgment about how much you're willing to give up, how much you're willing to soak in of different foreign cultures. But ultimately, it's a personal judgment. Uh, I agree with you. Um, I, I've never, I'm not an immigrant, so I've never lived anywhere else outside the United States. But I still feel that I have been a person who's been exposed to many cultures. I grew up in Texas, but I also grew up in Louisiana. And Texas has a very different culture from Louisiana. You know, when I think of culture, I think of food. You know, Texas is known for barbecue and known for, you know, uh, some types of soul food and things like that. Whereas Louisiana is known for spicier Creole food, you know, Cajun food. Um, and there was a lot of French and Pig Latin spoken around me when I was growing up. And, and I still, I don't know as much as I used to, but that was another thing. Hearing French, my grandparents spoke in French and they did it because they didn't want kids to know what they were talking about because they didn't teach us. So we would just pick up words and phrases here and there. I, my first songs that I learned were in French. My, I learned my alphabet first in French. And then I had to learn English. And then I lost it all because I didn't use it after probably about 20. But um, so growing up in two different places and having kind of two different cultures, you know, here's Zydeco and here's the spicy food and here's more of a Tex-Mex, you know, uh, Hispanic um, type of food. So it's, it's, you know, it was very different. And and I found myself um, when I went to school, I also ended up going to private schools, private Catholic schools up until eighth grade. That's a whole different culture there. So uh, when I went to public school for the first time, it was, you're not black enough. Why do you talk like that? Um, And depending on where I was living, when I went to college, I was in East Texas. I got a very strong East Texas accent. It was like, them bears over there are top panties and them bears over there are mine. You know, it was very twangy. And I came back here and I was like, <gasps> I heard myself talking one day and I was like, oh my gosh. I wanted to stop talking because I didn't even believe once I was out of that environment, it took like six months for my language to come back to normal. 
So, you know, to me, um, culture is, is music, it's food, it's accent, it's, it's beliefs, it's traditions, holidays, it's all of those things. And, and, you know, I think that one of the things that's helped me in the last several years is embracing all of that. Because I think sometimes uh, in America, we are taught to be ashamed of certain things or to, to repress certain things. And uh, it's been very freeing for me to say, all right, I want to succeed, but not at the expense of, let's say, not going natural or not at the expense of feeling like I have to take all of the slang out of my vocabulary you know, and, and never express myself in that way. Or even to the point of not, like if I'm writing this book, I want to show that I'm a black woman in what I write. And I want the culture and community that I grew up with to, to influence what I write. And I think that that adds richness to our world and also to our writing. You know, what do you think about, because you have a unique book in, in terms of, I, from what I've read of it, it shows the African culture, it shows the immigrant culture, and then it shows the American, African-American culture. And I haven't, I haven't read a book like that yet, you know, besides yours. And I thought that that was really um, insightful. Uh, was that a perfect, like a purposeful decision that you made that you wanted to show kind of those three different cultural I guess, dichotomies, or however you want to say it, was that? The, yes, in a particular story, mm -hmm. I made that decision. Mm -hmm. And that's a story set in Houston, by the way, in a part of <laughs> um, When I first wrote the story, the couple was an interracial couple. It was an African immigrant and his white American girlfriend. But it didn't quite work. And, it, and then it struck me, this is going to be a better story if it's told between the African and his African-American girlfriend. And I had inspirations to draw from, some friends of mine that I could draw from to build up those characters mm. in, in narrativity. And I did that, and I really enjoyed doing that because it enabled me bring out a lot of the stereotypes that pass between Africans and African-Americans about each other. But I wanted to do it in such a way that we talked about those stereotypes, but we also owned them. We celebrated them. They weren't necessarily negative. We laughed at them. The two characters laughed at those stereotypes. So you own them. You, 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 you talk them up, but you don't turn them into this thing of, of, of negative discrimination. The two characters love each other, mm -hmm. but they are open to fair stereotypes and they laugh about them. Mm -hmm. it, it enabled me to explore a lot of those things and put them in print. Because like you said, it's talked about. It's, it's never thought to be polite conversation mm -hmm. to mention them across you know, the divide. So I have a question for you. You know, right now there's this controversy going around about uh, this term called passport bros. Have you heard about this? Yes. 
So for anybody who has never heard of this, this is American men, especially African-American men who are well-to-do, and they are deciding they want to go abroad because they feel that women abroad are more submissive and more respectful and easier to deal with, and they want to go abroad and they want to, uh, in some cases, have flings because they don't, they feel like these women put them on high pedestals, pedestals, um, and in some cases find a wife, you know, so you have these two different, in a sense to me, types of passport bros, the ones that are looking to be exploitative and the ones that are looking to let me go get her and bring her back so that I don't have to deal with these women here. Um, and because I know no women <laughs> from, um, that are over there, you know, anywhere over there, anywhere outside of America. You know, I, I can't really speak on that, but you know, from my perspective of the women that I've seen come here, um, I don't see this, uh, this idea that these men are talking about. I do see sometimes some women are in any group. There are women that are more submissive, and there are women that are less submissive in any group. Um, and I think culturally there can be differences. Um, and I think also in age, there can be differences. When I was in my 20s, I'm 52, I was extremely submissive. I was raised to be extremely submissive. I was taught that that's what you do as a wife. I was submissive to the point of not asking questions when I should have. Um, one of the things that I saw in your book, um, which I guess was maybe a little surprising to me was it seemed like there was, there are very strong women, very strong women. And I think that some Americans have this misconception that African women are not strong, or if they are strong, it's the matriarch, like the elderly matriarch that's strong, but the younger women are very doormatty. And, and I think of the movie coming to America as a stereotype. You know, bark like a dog. Bark like a big dog. Woof, woof, woof. You know, what do you want to eat? Whatever you like. You know, that, that kind of thing. And of course, he was the king, but I think that that stereotype may still exist. So I wanted you to speak on, you know, however you want to approach this topic. If you think there are stereotypes about African women, um, versus African-American women in terms of submissiveness or, or, or strength. And, and what do you think about that as, as an African man who's come to America and has probably seen both sides? You might be in a unique position to give us your opinion about this. Well, that's the, let me start with Passport Bros. Okay. You know, because I, I watch a lot of this on social media, mm. on TikTok, particularly. Mm. There are lots of jokes and skits about mm. Passport Bros. And this is my personal opinion. I'm not a passport bro, but just a guy. Right. I, I think that what people go there to do, mm. the men, is to find women that ordinarily would be above their reach ah, okay. in America. Okay. And for me, it's an economic thing. Ah. Okay? Because when you go to certain countries, having been from the developing world, Mm -hmm. I know that when you come with an income, 
mm. an average income from America mm-hmm. and go to certain countries which are not so successful materially, economically, mm-hmm. you go with just your average income, you're a king. Mm. Right? Gotcha, gotcha. So, you go, you go in there, in, I'm just giving an example. You, know, you go in there with $1,000, mm. for instance. Gotcha. You know, which, yeah, okay, it's $1,000, but it's not the end of the world. But you go there and you, you're the champion, man. Mm. You're, gotcha. you're like, you're, you're the man. Mm-hmm. Yes? So, you would get what men would see as beautiful. Mm. You know, that would be way above your reach here. Gotcha. But because you're over there, mm-hmm. you can, you know, score the woman. Gotcha. For whatever reason, long-term relationship, one-night stand. And for me, as a guy, mm. I guess that that is why most guys go there. I'm not mm. sure it's about the submissiveness. Ah, okay. You know, I am okay. really not sure it's about the submissiveness. Okay. It's more about, what can I get with my money? Ah, <laughs> that's, that's okay. What it is. okay, you know? okay. That's, that's what I see it as. And, you know, that takes us straight into submissiveness. Mm-hmm. I've lived in, you know, many countries of the world. I've lived in Africa, I've lived in the UK, I've lived here, I've traveled a lot mm-hmm. by virtue of the work I do. And I think that the conception mm-hmm. of women as submissive, at least in the parts of the world I've lived in, from Africa to the UK to here is sometimes a misconception. Mm, okay. You had the stereotypes in coming to America. We all laughed. I watched them. I was still living in Nigeria growing up when I watched <laughs> coming to America. And we all laughed about them. It was funny. Mm. And I don't think anybody really took offense. We mm. really laughed. It was comedy. You knew right. what they were doing. You knew what Eddie Murphy and Asimi Hall were about. It was funny. Right, we right. all enjoyed them. But I don't think anybody took it seriously mm-hmm. to be the typical African woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote my book, it was actually one of the first readers that were called Buddha readers mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. told me, hmm, the women in your book are very strong. Mm-hmm. I'd never given a thought. It wasn't a conscious mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You know? And then she said, why? How so? You're a guy. How come your women are so strong? I said, well, perhaps because the women I grew up with were very strong. Mm. I, I didn't know any other type of woman. I knew women who were independent from my mother mm. and her mom, my grandmom, independent, did their thing. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom was born in the 30s, so this mm. is not a woman of today. Mm-hmm. You know, but she went to college, she, mm. she, she did her thing, she wasn't reliant. Mm-hmm. And my father, even though they were married for over 60 years till she passed, but mm. she did her thing. She was independent. And she she had one sister. Mm. And I remember growing up, and my mother was always telling her, you have to be a strong woman. You have to mm. be a woman that can take care of yourself. So mm. that's the kind of picture I got. And if you say my mother is not the typical African woman, mm. you know, all the women I saw, her friends, and the aunties, as we call them in Africa growing up, were like that. They were like feisty women. Talking about feisty brings us to the next point. Okay. African-American women. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So there's a stereotype mm-hmm. in Africa. I'll own up to that. Mm-hmm. Among African parents, mm-hmm. particularly African men, mm-hmm. 
that African American women are very feisty. Mm. <laughs> Feistier than African women. Gotcha. gotcha. African women are strong, mm -hmm. but are willing to draw a line sometimes. They are willing mm -hmm. to give you a pass. Okay, because you have a husband and the king of the house, are going to let it go. Mm -hmm. Okay? You know, they're going to cook for you. There are certain duties that they recognize are their duties, even if they're mad with you. Mm. They're going to do these gotcha. things, and it's okay. Stereotypes. I'm talking stereotypes. Right, 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 right. You remember that? African American women do not take nonsense. Mm. You know? okay, okay. And so these are some of the stereotypes I confronted mm. in the story I told you about in the book, The Pot right. of Soup. Mm. And so our African-American woman, woman there doesn't take nonsense. She's, she's, she's a flight attendant, but she just doesn't take nonsense from her man. Mm -hmm. And she's very short-tempered. Mm -hmm. She doesn't cook. She doesn't clean. You know, she raises an apple McKinney and she's watching Real Housewives of wherever, loving hip-hop. That, that's what she's always doing. But, but... Our hero is completely in love with her, mm. and he doesn't bite. Mm. He does the cleaning up, he does the washing up, mm. he doesn't like to cook even though he can, so they eat out. Mm. Which is where, you know, the central plot comes about. But then, all his friends tell her that they look at her, and because of her, they couldn't date an African-American woman. Mm. Woman, <laughs> and he says, "Well, you guys don't know what you're talking about because that's what is interesting for me." Mm. And then he doesn't like the comparative submissiveness of African women in age because he thinks they're pretending. Mm. They just want the ring and the finger, mm. and once the ring is on the finger, they show their true colors, which is another thing African ah. men talk about. And she's all sweet and everything until you get that ring on her finger, and then you see something. Oh, okay, so so, so that, that I, I don't want to interrupt you, but that, that makes me want to ask you, do you feel that African women value marriage more than African-American women? Again, this is, um, again, I'm dwelling in, in, in stereotypes, you know, mm -hmm. I'm dwelling in generalizations. Mm -hmm because everybody's different. I think it's, 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 it's an individual decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to culture. Okay, culture, yes. You know, culturally, I, I think I've lived in America now for almost 15 years. But again, like I said in my book, when I say I've lived in America for almost 15 years, living in Africa, America dominates your life. Mm. African-American culture, American culture, the movies, the music, the fashion, you know, the slangs, these things dominate our life. You grow up watching them, imbibing them, and again, another of the characters in the book talks about it in the interview, when she's asked, have you been to America before? And she says no, but in her head she's saying that she didn't say yes, mm. because I know America is in my face, I can't escape it, it, mm. it just dominates my world every day. Mm. I can't escape it, but well, technically I haven't been so I'm going to say no. But to your question, dwelling on stereotypes, if we're allowed to, I would think culturally perhaps, yes, mm. there's a greater communal expectation and mm. pressure mm. 
to get married. It's a different kind of pressure here. Uh, growing up in Africa, there's, there's a certain age a woman is supposed to be married. Mm -hmm. Even till today, a mm -hmm. woman is supposed to be married. There's no, you're not forced to do it. Mm -hmm. People will just, you know, talk and talk and talk and talk. But please, there's no coercion or people dragging you up into an arranged marriage. You know, at least not in the middle class world in which I grew up in, which is really a large segment of, of Africa. It's not as if you're forced, but just the community expectation of if you don't mind, what's wrong with that? Mm, you know? gotcha. So there's an expectation, just like there's an expectation here. When women start to grow up, oh, I'm going to be a princess on my wedding, white wedding, and all that. There's an expectation when you're growing up there that you have to be married at a certain age. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the woman would be better able to talk about it, but that, that, that pressure exists. So I see a greater, for me, a greater tendency to, to, to compromise mm -hmm. from friends, peers. To compromise on the quality of your life partner just to get married mm -hmm. and just to be able to say I am Mrs. Sosa and so I see greater pressure on the African woman. You know, um, I'm in a lot of singles groups on Facebook and other platforms, well, mostly Facebook and um, probably I think four of them. And that's a topic that comes up every now and then. Do people value marriage? Do women value marriage? Um, and I think it has shifted in America a lot. Um, when I was growing up, when I was in college, I felt like I was about to graduate college. So I'm about 24 and all of my friends were married. And I felt like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm like, uh, what's wrong? You know, okay, I'm dating, but uh, we're not at the altar yet. And I felt like, this pressure, not that my parents were pushing me, but it was more of, you went to college, you got married. So as you're getting ready to graduate college, and, and I spent six years in college because I transferred and I lost some credits. Um, you know, so most of my friends had graduated two years prior and were married and having kids already. And so I'm like, you know, so there was almost this like, I'm behind the curve because I'm, I'm now, you know, we graduated high school at 18, you know, and then most of them graduated college at 22 and we're getting married as soon as they got out of college. And so I'm 24 and I'm not. And I ended up married right after I got out of college, but it was like, um, oh, oh my gosh, you know, almost like this, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What was me? What was me kind of feeling because I wasn't at the time. Um, and during that two year period where they were already building their families and I'm still in school, it was very, it was a very strange time. And I, but at that time, you know, and we're talking in what, 1994, you know, there wasn't this idea of what are you worried about? Why are you in a rush? You know, live your life. You know, um, hot girl summer. None of that existed back then. You know, so now I think it's people are like, no, I want to get my, I want to get my career on track, and I want to travel, and I want to do all. Kids are going to slow me down. 
I think it's a very different conversation. And I don't think at that point, even in the 90s, anyone I knew, anyone I was around was even thinking like that. Um, so I think it's a very different conversation. I think the culture has changed a lot when it comes to marriage because marriage is seen as a, it's seen as a, um, a status. It's seen as a positive generally. Some people don't see it that way, but it's seen as a, as a, like a landmark or a milestone, but it's not like this thing you have to do. And if you don't, then what's wrong with you in my, you know, in, in the circles that I'm running in now. So it's a very different conversation and, you know, as I hear in these circles, a lot of men very upset about that. Like, why don't these women want relationships? Why don't they want to get married? You know, and, um, and the women are like, because it doesn't benefit us. You know, because we end up working harder to take care of, you know, our husbands and our kids than we would if we were single and just dating. We end up giving up so much of ourselves while you guys are sitting there playing video games after work. You know what I mean? Uh, or, or watching YouTube videos. We're cooking dinner. We're washing clothes. We're doing the kids' homework. We're do, you know. And um, do you do you see that kind of cultural shift in Africa or with women that have immigrated here, or do you think it's very much still the same that there's not been a shift at all? Well, like I said, the only difference really is, like I said, well, I detected some greater pressure mm. from time gotcha. on African women, you know, in terms of certain expectations, community expectations. However, the trends that you talk about, mm. I think are everywhere, even mm. in Africa. You, you go on YouTube, there are influencers from Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, South Africa, and you see the shift that has occurred. And I think it's occurred over the last quarter of a century, 25 mm. years, as women get more emancipated and economically empowered. Mm. Mm -hmm. The view changes because, mm. let's call it spade a spade. Mm. When you break into corporate America, corporate Nigeria, corporate Kenya, or wherever, and you have the means to take care of yourself, Mm -hmm. Your view of marriage changes. You no longer enter marriage with this view of, I gotta find a man to take care of me and my kids. No. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different conversation. Mm -hmm. You're not able to look for a man mm -hmm. who will be your companion, not right. necessarily because he can take care of you. And so that completely changes the dynamic. Mm -hmm. Now, you're willing to tolerate, I think, less right. than you would if. Well, the only thing you were bringing to the table was, I'm going to have kids for him, and I'm going to take care of the kids, and I'm going to cook and clean. You know, you can take care of yourself. So why would you just, you know, take on a man, <laughs> you know, just for the sake of being married? That, that economic dynamic changes the view. And I think it's, it's happened even in Africa as well. And the age of social media, which has allowed women yet another opportunity beyond the conventional to make a lot of money. There are lots of women influencers on social media for various reasons. Mm -hmm. I think the influencers on social media are more women mm -hmm. than men, mm -hmm. just for various reasons about how social mm -hmm. media works. 
people are more willing to look at women and to mm. listen to women on, mm. on social media if you look at if you look at say um, fitness enthusiasts mm. if you look at models if mm. you look at people who are portraying fashion mm. people are more willing to listen to women so there are great opportunities now mm. for women to be themselves to be mm. you know like Destiny's Child saying, "Come on." <laughs> okay, know? well, that's that's very interesting. You know, I'm I'm enjoying this conversation. Uh, I wanted to spend some time on your book. So, what what made you start writing? I've always written. Mm-hmm. It was something I I discovered very early. I had a gift for it mm-hmm. um, from elementary school because you know come out in English language subjects, I would come out as young on top. I didn't think I was doing everything or anything special. It was something that came naturally and then my scores would be way above everybody else. I just had a flair for it. I discovered that very early and I realized what it was. So I wrote, my essays were always very good. I would write an essay I thought was normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, my teacher would read it out in class. There was mm-hmm. a standing essay in this class that I could mm-hmm. I just wrote mm-hmm. something ordinary, you mm-hmm. know. So um, I discovered that gift quite early, mm-hmm. and I went with it. And then I read law. I became an attorney mm-hmm. initially. That was the first thing I did because I had several career changes. That was the first thing I did. writing other things, won prizes, international prizes. I was really young when I started winning prizes and things that weren't even more, writing about international finance and economics and kept winning prizes. So it's something I've always done, but fiction mm. was always at the back of my mind. I had, mm. I had stories to tell. Gotcha. I had stories to tell. And then at a particular point in my life, I started traveling a lot. And I had a lot of downtime. So to while away time, I would sit down and write a short story. Some of them were in this book. Mm. I'd sit down, write a short story, think about something funny I had, and turn it into a story. And some of the stories in this book came out there. And then two years ago, I said, you know what? I have all the stories lying around. Mm. Let me publish a book. Mm. I wasn't thinking about commercial success as much as publish a book and have something that outlives me. Because when you reach a certain age, you confront your mortality. Yes. You no longer think you're going to live forever. That's because true. you're starting to see parents pass, you're starting to see even your peers pass, and you know what? I'm not Superman as I thought I was. So if something happens to me, how are people going to remember me? You know, so I just wanted something that, well, this is my little testament to the world. Here's my book. That's very interesting that you say that because, um, you know, my book, this one right here, Plenty of Guppies and Other Dating Misadventures, I I had a friend um, who's in the book, he's San Antonio in the book, and he kept saying, you should write a memoir, you should write about your life, and I was like, I don't want to write about my life, who's going to want to read about my life, and he's like, your life is so interesting, he's like, I can't wait to hear phone calls from you because you have the most, you have the greatest stories about your life, about what you did, I was like, no, that's private, I don't want to, you know. 
Um, but then you're right, you know, having a lot of, in, in the seven year period that that book covers, I actually had 14 deaths. And it does make you look at things very differently when people pass, especially when you don't have much, you have your memories, you have a few pictures, but you don't have much, like there's no something that you could read of their story. Like, I wish that I had more from some of the people that passed. And I was like, you know, when I started writing, actually I was typing, but about, you know, some of the memories I had and going back in time, one of the things that I am grateful for is it is a legacy. It is a piece of me that will live on after I go. It is something that my kids can read to know more about me and the way I thought and the way I felt and my experiences. So it, I think that that is a big, as I was writing it, it almost felt like, yes, I have to get this done because if anything ever happens to me, this will be here as a testament that I actually lived and walked on this earth and I left something of myself behind. And so um, it's, it's interesting that you say that about fiction because fiction is definitely, I think that there is a little bit of autobiography in every piece of fiction, a little bit of here's how I thought, here's what I saw in the world, here are the things that intrigued me, even though I'm fictionalizing this stuff. Would you agree with that? Totally. Completely, I completely agree with that. There's a bit of me in every story in this book. Yeah, and and I think I think that that's what I think that's what makes writing sometimes difficult. You know, I I think it was Stephen King, and I think he said, um, "If you don't cry while you're writing it, the reader won't cry when they read it." You know, right. and it's it's like. Um, there's that rawness when you're digging deep into your memories, into your thing, conversations that you've heard, epiphanies that you have realized, you know, whatever it is, uh, dreams that you may have had, things that you wish you could have done that you let your characters do, you know, in, in terms of fiction. You know, I think that it's, it's, it's a mining that you have to do of your own subconscious to bring everything to life, you know, and, and really facing a lot of things, facing things that people don't want to talk about sometimes, facing maybe your own fears. Like I know in, in even writing the title, you know, that might've been a facing of a fear of how people might perceive you or the book. I think that there is a lot of courage that has to happen when you put yourself on the page, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. What do you think about that idea? Do you agree with that? I agree with you completely. You know, um, directly, I had to confront certain things when I was yeah. writing. And because when you're working in corporate anywhere, there's a certain persona mm -hmm. that you present to the world. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to what we were saying about culture and adapting yourself, there's a certain persona you, you, you present naturally. You're supposed to be this serious fellow mm. and there's a limit to which you can give vent to your artistic side or to your cool side or to your unserious side so in writing the book sometimes i found myself saying hang on if the members of the board of my company read this mm. you know is it going to make them think differently of me but in the end i was like well there's nothing to 
same over here, and really, 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 I think, I think on the balance, like, I can say, well, it didn't really have so interesting, it was just as boring for them. Right, right. <laughs> so, yes, you're right. You know, I mean, everything you do, even when you're writing fiction, there are certain things you have to confront mm. about yourself. And then on the other side, it also gives you an opportunity to voice from your characters things that you might not be able to say for various reasons or things you're repressing. Mm -hmm. But because it's fiction, you go first of all with the caveat that, hey, everybody here is fictional. Nothing here resembles anyone who's living or dead. And if, mm -hmm. if, if, if it does, it's purely coincidental. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So once you put your caveat out, Yes. You can now go to town. I, I said certain things here mm -hmm. about religion, just mild, you know, questioning mm -hmm. certain things. But those are thoughts that came from within. Mm -hmm. But you can put it in a character's mouth and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's, it's all part of the story and it makes the story more interesting. Whereas if you said it yourself, mm -hmm. unknowingly, people would say, is he alright? <laughs> is he alright <laughs> you know uh, in my memoir I let people go into my brain and I say I went on this date and I'm thinking all of these things as this guy is talking to me and I give you all the thoughts and I don't tell you what I concluded at the end sometimes you know because I want you to go through this whole you know journey with me um, and sometimes I do tell you what I thought at the end um, so some of that ruminating, some of that delving into, you know, possibilities and, and, and thought processes and questions, you know, I was able to do that in the memoir because we do that in real life. You know, we do that. We, we think and we question and we wonder and we speculate and we, you know, we, we go down all these rabbit holes and sometimes we come to conclusions and other times we don't have a conclusion. We just leave it hanging because there is no answer. You know, everything in life doesn't get answered. Um, so you decided to put all of these stories together. Um, and was there any, I guess, pattern in, in the way that you ordered them? Was there, was it like, you know, did you have like a system of the way that you organized the stories or was it more random? It was actually random. Gotcha. Random in the sense that the stories actually arranged in the order in which they were written. Gotcha. And they were written over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So there's no common element mm -hmm. in the stories, apart from, of course, my writing style is basically the same. Right. And each story has a twist. Mm -hmm. And I, I tried, tried, it's for the reader to determine whether I was successful to be humorous in the stories. I, I didn't want the stories to be serious. I just wanted it to be entertainment that people could read and laugh about and take themselves, the characters, or the stories too seriously. That's the only common thing. But in terms of plot and structure, you know, that was, it was, they were entirely random. They were written over different periods and some of the stories depended on how I was feeling at the time. One of the stories, which is the most serious, was written in a time I was very annoyed mm -hmm. about certain things which were happening in West Africa, suicide bombings, mm -hmm. you know, teenagers being forced into suicide bombings. And again, I must be very clear about this, it was in a very isolated place of, of West Africa. You know, 
because of the particular sociocultural and religious dynamics of that area. And it was a very limited set of people who were doing it. I have to say this because I don't want to be one of those who is portraying everything Africa as no terrible, bad, wars, illiteracy, disease. You know, that's that's not my Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, my Africa was very middle class, very happy, you know, very successful and well educated Africa. So, but there's a particular part of that region that that was going on, and I thought, as happens in war a lot of the time, or in strife, the privileged and upper classes, who war often doesn't affect, there's just a certain way it happens in life, I can't explain it, just abandon those people. Mm. Everyone was carrying on as normal. Mm. And every time I traveled into West Africa, I would be on the plane, and I would see a lot of relief agencies coming in. You know, and they were going to that particular region. We would all land in Abuja or Lagos, and then they would take local flights to that particular region where this was happening. So it was a serious thing. But the rest of the people carried on as if it was life as usual. But you would read things, you would see things in the news. It would be statistics. 40 people died in the bombing. 300 people died. How many houses were burnt down? The bomber was a teenage girl. This bomber was a teenage boy. They were forced into it. And I was like, why is nobody concerned about this? Why, why, why are we all carrying on this normal? And, and, and then I, I wrote the story. So it doesn't have a connection in terms of question you asked me. Some of the other stories which are completely unserious stories. Right, have right, some right. completely crazy, silly stories, you know, about about a college professor who is who is who is dying for one of his students, and and she takes a bet with another student that she can do something and he's not going to react. She can do something very provocative and mm. he's not going to. You know, so there's on the surface no connection between both. So there's no particular order in which they are arranged. Just writing stories that you know, whatever it was that was topical to me at that time, I would write it. However, it worked in its own way mm-hmm. because a lot of the reviews have said that there's something in the book for everyone. <laughs> so if you want serious, it's there. If you want, right? If you want serious, it's there. And there are billionaires. There are stories mm-hmm. about billionaires in the book. There are stories about really poor people. There are stories about Pentecostal preachers. There are stories mm-hmm. about Islamic clerics, all sorts of things. There's stories about women, there's stories about men, there's stories about con men, there's stories about cheating women, cheating men, a bit of everything. I I love that. Because, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that books do is they broaden our horizons, they expose us to places, people, events that we might never have experienced otherwise. And I think they also, I won't even say I think, Research says that they build empathy for people that are not like us. And when you're talking about a totally different culture in the case of, you know, many of your characters are African or Nigerian, um, I think it's great for people who are of that culture and also not of that culture to be exposed because we get to see our commonalities and we also get to see the diversity and to appreciate both, that we all are human beings, we all 
share some of the ups and downs of life. But then different cultures have diverse things like their food and, and the way they see relationships possibly or the values they have that are slightly in a different priority. Um, and I think that that's really, really great. And, and I think, you know, my book also, people will say there's something in there for any, everybody because I go through a divorce, uh, you know, so people that are divorced can, re you know, relate. There's grief in there. There's dating in there. There's my kids leaving home, coming back, leaving home, coming back. So if you got a boomerang situation with your kids, you might relate to that. Uh, I become a grandmother. I started business. You know, so there's so many different things. And that's, that's how life is. There's so many different things that happen to us. Um, so is there anything else you want to tell us about in the last, you know, few minutes that we have? I definitely want you to tell people where they can find your book and anything else that you want to tell us about the book before we wrap up or if you wanted to read a little excerpt from the book. Well, the, the book is our Kindred Stories, gotcha. which is where we had the yes. event <laughs> You voiced one of the characters, or some of the characters. Yes, I did. Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. So it's it's available in hard copy at Kindred Stories, which is um, the historic third ward by the Project Row Houses. Lovely area as well. It's um, I was happy it, it came out first in Houston and the black-owned store. That was very important for me for various reasons. I, I won't go into them now. But um, it's out there for anyone who wants to go there. And I, I think just going to Kindred Stories is an excursion by itself. It's, mm, it's, gotcha. it's, it's worth the trip. The surroundings, the shop itself, what it represents. It's available on Amazon. It's available on all the major retailers, Walmart, Friends, and Noble, Apple Books. It, it's, it's right there. You can get it. Um, I think, mm -hmm. me, I think it's a very interesting book. I think it's it's something people should get. It's a very easy read. The stories are 17 stories. Each of the stories is short. You'll probably be able to finish them in 10, 15 minutes. So you can read a story, read it, come back to it. I, I thought about it as a, as, as a book you could take and travel with, mm -hmm. you know, and it's easy on the, on, on the head. Mm -hmm. You could read a few stories, go to bed, go to sleep on the plane, you know, get to where you're going, the beach or wherever, read a few more stories. But the, the story I really want to talk about is an ending. Mm -hmm. Because again, it shows a connection, the connection that I talked about between living in various parts of the world and American culture, not being able to escape American culture. Mm -hmm. When I say escape, not that we wanted to escape, it was something we enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Nigeria. There was a university that took me to the UK. I grew up in Nigeria and it's amazing for someone who grew up in Nigeria, especially if you had a middle class existence, how much of African-American culture is in life. Mm. Okay? In the music, the fashion, even the taste in women. We mm. had similar tastes. And it always used to strike me then, when I lived in Nigeria, that of all the things we had a connection with, in terms of culture, in terms of the music, there was African-American culture, mm. there was African-American music, you listen to R&B, you listen to, well, reggae, you listen to when rap came out, that was my generation, your generation, right, when right, rap right. came out, it was ours, 
Mm-hmm. And he took it. He, he, he took it along with the breakdowns that came with mm-hmm. it. It was it was ours. Belonged to us. So one of the stories here was written with a particular time frame of rap in mind, mm-hmm. which is when I came of age in the nineties, mm-hmm. right? And that was the age of the great clapback songs. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, for me, the, the 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 most standout-ish of them all being hit him up. Okay. Tupac. Okay. Gotcha. Tupac hit him up to gotcha. Okay. Yes. Yes. Which yes. was this string song. Yeah. I, I remember when I first heard it too. Yes. In the club back then, and I was like, "Whoa, back! Whoa, whoa, whoa! Okay, okay." <laughs> <laughs> this was bloody, bloody on the streets, man. But so I, I grew up in that culture, and then you had, you know, TLC, no, no scrubs, mm-hmm. you know, and then you had spotted thieves, no pigeons, you know, so yes. no scrubs was TLC saying, we don't want no scrubs, and spotted, right. you know, thieves saying, we don't want no pigeons, and we fly. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing fascinated me when I was growing up, and it was all, it was all fun, you know. The real Roxanne, Roxanne Shanti, and so on right. and so forth. The great clapback songs. And then there was a story written some time ago by the Nigerian author, Chimamanda Adichie, who's very famous. She hangs out with Mrs. Clinton, Mrs. Obama. She's a feminist author, but she's also a great author of fiction. She has these fictional books, one of them set in America, Americana, which are Excellent, excellent book. She is such an amazing writer. And she had a story published in the New Yorker years ago, which was called Bev Song. It was about a girl mm-hmm. in Lagos yeah. who had an affair with a married man whose family was in America, was living in America. So he was in Lagos living the bachelor life, doing big business and doing the bachelor life, and had this affair with a mistress. Mm-hmm. And the mistress is very bitter. She's mm-hmm. in traffic and she sees someone who could look, who she imagines would be how the sugar daddy sophisticated wife would look like. And then mm-hmm. she starts ruminating over her affair. It's a powerful story because mm-hmm. Chimamanda packs into the story. Every sentence is dripping with nuance, innuendo, all kinds of emotions that she manages to pack into a few words. Fascinating, I must have read the story about a hundred times. Mm. Now, on the hundredth time or so, I said to myself, hey, hang on. Chimamanda writes from entirely the woman's perspective. So you just get snippets of the guy. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's from the woman's perspective. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. what would the guy think? What would he say? Because mm-hmm. Chimamanda herself is the exponent of the dangers of a single story. Yes. That's in yes. every story there are always several sides, at least right. two sides, right. if not more. Mm-hmm. So I keep wondering what would be the other side to the story? Mm-hmm. What would the guy say? And then when I linked back to the clapbacks mm-hmm. yes. of the day, the great right, rap right, right, clapbacks, right. I said, Yeah, let's go for this. Mm-hmm. Let's do a hit em up kind of story. Let's 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 be the guy mm-hmm. talking back and saying, Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. You know, you've done the no scrubs things. I'm going to do the no pigeon thing. Right, right, right. And so I wrote the story. I say that because it was a very enjoyable story for me to do. I, I really enjoyed it. Talking back as the guy to the mistress who's complaining, mm-hmm. 
you know, if you're saying I got a short end of the stick and I'm saying, oh, hold on. Now, when I was doing it, I felt like Tupac, okay? <laughs> okay? <laughs> so for a brief moment, for a brief moment, I could project in my mind's eye, me not wearing a shirt and going at the mic like fat. But that was just that. Uh, it wasn't, um, I, I wasn't being offensive at all right. in the story. And, you know, I'm really respectful of women. You see it in the book. So I wasn't being offensive at all, but um, I think I, I I scored some for the guys. You know, I scored some for the men for <laughs> where such things are concerned. But um, that was the story I enjoyed, and I, I hope people read it. It's, it's set in Houston as well. It's, it's probably set in Houston. Chimamanda said the guy lived in America. Now, I didn't look there. Because right. I live in Houston, I, right, I, I right, placed right. him in Houston. I talk about Houston, they went to the Museum of Fine Art. That's where he finds out that the story has been written about him. Mm-hmm. You know, and I talk about Houston things, a lot of Houston establishments that are mentioned there, including strip clubs mm-hmm. that were mentioned there. So mm-hmm. it's, it's real, it's live, it's set here, they live in Sugarland, and so on and so forth. So I wanted to talk about that story as another reason why people should, should buy the book and read it. You know, but it was it was one of the stories I really really enjoyed writing. So I want to ask you a question before we exit this. I was just on Facebook earlier today, um, and uh, this guy said, "I think there's a black woman black man beat, just like there used to be an East Coast West Coast beat." So since you were talking about you know the story that the woman wrote in the New Yorker and yours was a clapback. And so this is kind of a fictional beef in a sense. Um, do you believe that there is a black man, black woman beef right now, you know, where black men are like the passport bros. We are upset with black women and we're going overseas. <laughs> black women are like, uh, go, <laughs> we don't care, you know, and, and, this is all the problems we have with you. Do you think that there is a beef? Or do you think it's not a beef at all? It's just personal people having, personal people, individual people having their individual problems with each other? Or do you think it's more of a societal thing? What do you think? I think there's a beef. You there's think a, there's a beef? Okay. I okay. think there's a beef, but hang on. It's, it's, if I may use the word, a friendly beef. Uh, it's a friendly beef. Okay. Okay. It's a friendly beef. We are both, you know, making fun of each other. Okay. Each other okay. And okay. It's even not just black men and women. I see uh-huh. it a lot on social media between men and women generally. Men and women. If you go to Twitter, like I said, I think, you know, Zina, I think you men are having your revenge now for <laughs> <laughs> centuries of, 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 of male dominance. That's what I think as a man. Um, Suddenly, for the first time in in history, Mm. men are starting to feel oppressed. Oh, God. (laughs) Because the women actually have a voice now. Uh, And social media gives them even more of a voice. Mm. And women are very active on social media. And if you're a guy and you you go into one of the women's spaces and you try and 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 make a careless sassy comment, they'll beat you down. The women <laughs> will come for you. <laughs> so that's what I mean. And this is not about 
black and white, each group, just women and men generally. I, I see this a lot. Mm-hmm. You know? Women have their spaces now when they talk about completely women things and the air they are used and they don't care. And if men attempt, I've tried a few times to say, hang on, and I've been beating black and blue. Ah, wow. The women just come for you and there's nothing you can do about it. But I think ultimately it's all friendly. Yeah, okay. I think okay. ultimately it's not it's not like this. You know, everybody's in their camps and, and they're all busy uh AK's man and, 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 and it's all friendly beef, but there is beef. <laughs> so I'm gonna ask you one more question. So just the other day on my Facebook page, I already mentioned I'm in a couple of Facebook singles groups, and uh there was a picture that was posted of Michael B. Jordan, but he was put over his face was basically put on Carlton's body from the Fresh Prince. And the tagline that this was, there were two men that posted this in two different groups. The tagline was, this is how women see Michael B. Jordan. And the women all commented, what women? Because the argument the men were saying was that he got teased in high school he met his bully at a red carpet premiere for the Creed 3. And he said to her, oh, I used to be the corny guy who was carrying around my headshots. Look at me now. And men seemed to take that, these men that posted it anyway, as if these women still saw him as corny. And, and all of the women in the groups that I were, was in, they were like, uh, you don't realize there's been a shift? You don't realize that women don't see him as corny? You know, but the men were like, see, see, they still see him as corny. And, and uh, my, my question to the men was, and I even put this on my own personal page. I put it in the group and I put it in my own personal page. Why are you as a man demeaning him in a sense? You think Carlton is corny. You put his face on Carlton's body with the clothes. You're putting him down now. You're ridiculing him. And then you're accusing us of doing it. Well, we're not. High school was a long time ago for this man. He's now a sex symbol. But you're the one putting him down. Don't you see a problem with this? Like you're trying to use him as an example, but he's not. He's graduated from that category. Now you're the one ridiculing him as a man. Don't you see a problem with this? And there were still men saying, see, you can't see that women are still making fun of him. I'm like, there's no women making fun of him. None that I have seen anywhere on social media. None. I mean, unless I'm missing a total picture of something, I haven't seen it happen. The only people I see ridiculing him are men. You're a male basher. You must hate men. Because I'm pointing out what you're doing, I hate men. So, I've asked men, I said, why would men post this picture? That to me is demeaning. Here's a very masculine man. And you're comparing him to a boy that is seen as corny by many people as a fictional character. That to me is demeaning. So why do this? I don't get it. You know, and and I haven't gotten a really good answer yet. So maybe you have something to say about this as we close. Like, I know you can't speak for anybody, the people who did this, but it seems sometimes that men want to make a point so bad 
but they don't even understand that the point they're making can't be made the way they're making it and that they're doing more harm than good to themselves. <laughs> First of all, I, I found the whole episode funny mm. from the interview. I saw the interview and I saw him say what he said. Mm -hmm. And honestly, till mm -hmm. today, I, I don't know if he's clarified it. I don't know if he was serious or he was mm -hmm. just making a general joke. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if he actually meant it as you, the interviewer, was one of those, or mm -hmm. whether he just meant it as a general joke of, you know, I used to be the corny guy now. You all are, you mm -hmm. know, needing to speak to me. Needing to speak to me, right. Yeah, yeah. so I, I don't know. I don't mm -hmm. know if he, you know, he's an actor and an mm -hmm. entertainer. And right, right. The body language I saw was, it, it was almost like a stand-up joke mm -hmm. that he made, exactly. you know, mm -hmm. a stand-up off-the-cuff joke. So, I, I don't know if he meant it personally mm -hmm. to her. Um, she took it in good stead as well. You know, mm -hmm. she immediately she answered back very quickly. You know, oh, no, 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 we didn't call you that, and so on and so forth. Now, coming back to the spin-offs, mm -hmm. what has come out of it, I think it's a bit... Um, it's a bit complicated because mm. um, what you saw, mm -hmm. my first interpretation of it, and you know how it goes on social media, things mm. start in a certain way, and then by the time people comment, it's like Chinese walls. Mm. If you go down 200 comments later, it's taking a completely different shift from mm -hmm. where it started. Mm -hmm. Because when I first saw that, the impression I got was men were celebrating the corny guy made good. Mm -hmm. the, the man who the women didn't want in high school. Right. And now he's the man. Right. Because right, I right. think more men than not mm -hmm. were in that position from high school. Right. Most right, right. men have some sort of memory of being turned down by the hot chicks. Right. Right? In right. high school and then, you know, we go on and we become successful men. Or that's the hope that become a successful man and then mm -hmm. when they see you you have your revenge mm -hmm. and Michael Jordan was in a position mm -hmm. where all of a sudden mm -hmm. he had lived out the dream of millions of men mm -hmm. you know they made fun of me and here I am Michael B. Jordan the big big star creed right right right, 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 right. forever right right Killmonger yes and <laughs> You know, yes. I, I think a lot of men lived a moment. Right. In that moment, they right. lived. They lived in that moment. Right. Yes, 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 yes. 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 It happened <coughs> right there, and we can see. So they lived through him. Mm -hmm. So when that thing first appeared, the impression I got was men were saying, "You see, this is Michael B. Jordan." But when we're in high school, you see, you don't see him for Michael B. Jordan. Mm -hmm. You right. see him for, for Carlton, mm -hmm. and. Even when we talk about Carlton, that's why I say it's, 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 it's a bit complicated. Even when we talk about Carlton, Carlton makes himself the figure of fun mm -hmm. in the Fresh Prince. Mm -hmm. it's, it's done on purpose, mm -hmm. you know? You know, but Alfonso Ribeiro, who is Carlton, is right. a star because of it right. in his own right. right, right you know, right. presenting programs, he's right. a star in his own right. right. You know, his dance. Yes. The most Carlton dance yes. is a classic. That's it's true. It's a classic Very of black true. culture. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. I, I went with my wife for her birthday, 
in, in, in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. And the club nights in the hotel were in, right. you know, they had the game, you know, for the guests and everything who attended. Mm -hmm. And they had points, mm -hmm. special points, extra points. You could win the game mm -hmm. if you could dance the Carlton dance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so gotcha. Carlton is a style in its own right. But we know what they were trying to say. Basically, they were trying to say this. You see a Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. which is all of us, all guys, mm -hmm. you know, but you don't appreciate us for who we are. You see instead the Carlton, a figure of fun, mm -hmm. right? Gotcha. And Michael B. Jordan was screwed all over the world. But I think sometimes in the conversation, it now got twisted to what you say, mm -hmm. that, that certain people picked on it, and we're still making fun of him. And I think that's where it twists. Mm -hmm. Because for someone like Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. like Michael B. Jordan, you have, again, life. A group right. of men us behind our keyboards were like, why does it have to be you? That has to be a sex symbol. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy could, after all. You know, <laughs> used to be counting and something, and like a vision. You know, so then there, was a, mm, yes. there were complicated things going on right there. Right. So it was right, kind right. of a revenge. You think you're so hot, yeah? Yeah? You can tell the hot interviewer. You can actually, a lot of us would like to get with that, and you're in a position where you can actually make fun of her. Well, you're not so hot. I wasn't sure you're not so hot. So, there's all this going on. Mm. I don't know if I can give a straightforward answer. But no, it's you're complex, doing very well. <laughs> it's a complex thing about different complexes. Gotcha. You know, basically, essentially, what happens is people want to be the ones in the superior position, mm -hmm. where they're the ones everybody wants, mm -hmm. where they're the ones having their revenge on people who used to make fun of them, mm -hmm. where they're objects of desire of mm -hmm. everybody gotcha. and when they see a person in that position mm -hmm. you know and all this is a lot of it is good natured mm -hmm. you know like i sit down and say why is it him mm -hmm. it doesn't mean i have any ill feelings towards him but right. especially on social media i can yeah you think you're all that yeah all that so it's a love-hate thing. I love that he had this opportunity. And I hate that it was him. Why couldn't exactly. it be me? Why couldn't it be, you know? So it's, exactly. it's a love-hate thing. Okay, so that makes a lot of that makes a lot more sense to me because at first I was like, I'm lost. First you were rah-rahing him and now you seem to be ridiculing him. What is what? I was so lost. I was so lost. But that makes sense. I, I, I kind of get it. I got it. Okay, well, thank you for your male insight into that because I was, as a female, I was like, okay, I guess my brain didn't work that way. It just doesn't go in all those different directions like that. So thank you for that. And I want to thank you for coming on. So tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you or, you know, book you or anything like that. How can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on social media. My name across social media is Peter Chica Writer as one word. I'm on Twitter. I have a Facebook page in that name. I'm on Instagram. I'm always posting. I'm having fun on Instagram, actually. I'm mixing reels. I'm making reels. I belong to a generation that is new, relatively, too. We didn't grow up with social media. So I'm suddenly having fun, you know, remixing things. I'm making, trying to make funny videos. So that's, that's fun. I have an active presence now on social media. I'm all across social media. There's also a website, pinochica.com, 
which has my stories, appearances, my book, you know, and I'm worried about that. Easy, easy, very easy to find. Okay, well, I want to thank everybody for joining us. I am Zanashe, that's Z-E-N-A-S-E, and you can find me on uh, all social media. The podcast is Zenergy, so please like, share, follow, and please, you know, check out his book, The Condom and Other Stories. You can get it at Kindred Books in Houston. You can also get it, as he told you, on his own website on Amazon, you know, and many other places. So thank you guys for joining us, and may you walk in synergy. Have a great night. Zanashe, a newly divorced 43-year-old Southern woman, wanted a fresh start. She'd heard there were plenty of fish to choose from in the modern dating pond. What she discovered were plenty of guppies, exactly 101 of them. The result? A provocative, transparent, raw, and delightfully uncensored account of her experiences with the 101 men she encountered on her journey to find the one. In Plenty of Guppies, Zen spills all the tea on dating psychology, relationships, and self-discovery while giving readers a rare glimpse into the life of an award-winning artist and best-selling author. The book is an enlightening narrative that explores gender roles and identity outside of societal expectations. Zen has written a refreshingly mature modern-day epic of online dating, layering her personal story with erotic poetic verses and passionate prose that frame her journey toward rebuilding a life as a single woman and adjusting to both an empty nest and boomeranging children.